0: This podcast is sponsored by Sound Physicians, the employer of choice for critical care physicians, where we seek to transform acute episodes of care. At Sound Physicians, we ensure physicians have the time and resources needed to deliver compassionate care that measurably improves quality and lowers the cost of health care for patients in the communities we serve. For more information, please visit careers.soundphysicians.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Eye Critical Care. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Enfield, and today I will be speaking with Matthias Eicherman, who is currently the chair of anesthesia at Montefiore Medical Center and professor at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Today, we're going to be discussing Dr. Ackerman's paper that was released in the July edition of Critical Care Medicine, Optimal Sedation in Patients Who Receive Neuromuscular Blocking Agents Infusions for Treatment of Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, a Retrospective Cohort Study from a New England Healthcare Network. Dr. Ackerman, before we begin, do you have any disclosures for the audience? Yes, I have been receiving
2: investigator-initiated grants from Merck, and as most of the uh, people in the audience know... Merck produces rocuronium and and reversal agents for for steroidal neuromuscular blocking agents. So there's no direct relation to the use of neuromuscular blocking agents in critical care medicine.
1: Thank you for being uh, so open with us uh, on that disclosure. You know the challenge with for most intensivists in the era of COVID and ARDS is really around the use of neuromuscular blockade. We had two very large trials, the ACURASIS and ROSE trials, which really led us to this conundrum of what should we do with neuromolecular muscular blockade in patients with refractory hypoxemia and severe ARDS. And you all undertook a trial to try to understand this. What was your impetus for really wanting to investigate the impact of sedation on these outcomes?
2: Yeah, thanks Kyle for asking. So I have a long interest in the clinical use of neuromuscular blocking agent, and most of my work is related to the operating room, but since I'm a critical care physician, I was, you know, always, you know, curious as to whether or not it would be reasonable to use neuromuscular blocking agents in the ICU. Initially, I was very critical because I was focused on the downsides of long-term use of muscle relaxants on muscle strength. And I'm a person who is very interested in early recovery and you know, making sure that our ICU patients are getting strong as they recover from critical illness. So I was initially critical and and gave talks years ago on the negative effects of using muscle relaxants in the ICU. Then the next thing that uh, I was then seeing years ago was the kypuresis trial by Papasian and co-workers, where they clearly showed an advantage of neuromuscular blocking agent use in the ICU. Well, I had at this time identified some issues, some methodological issues related to that trial, and I was looking forward to see the results of the ROSE trial, then, that you already mentioned. And as you also said, it was basically a contradiction of the results at the first glance. In the ROSE trial, a larger sample size trial, the investigators could not show a beneficial effect of neuromuscular blockade in LDS so then we looked closer uh, into the methods and compared the methods of the ACUSIS trial and the ROSE trial and found, well, the Papazian trial, the Curasis trial, was maybe even a little bit more methodologically rigor, because they used the same sedative regimen to all patients, whereas in the ROSE trial, the patients in the uh, neuromuscular blocking agent group, they received deep sedation. Whereas the patients in the control group who did not get neuromuscular block agents had received light sedation. And there's more and more information available on the downsides of deep sedation in the ICU. So we hypothesized basically that some of the differences between the ROSE trial and the Curisus trial could be explained by the differences in the sedation regimen. And that's what we were able to do to analyze based on our
1: data yeah I think a lot of us had that those same challenges, and so I know many people are looking forward to to reading this study and getting into it. One of the challenges that I had reading it, and I think other people had is that the mechanism you use to study this is a retrospective study you used exposure and mediator variables, which is not something many of us have been comfortable looking at and and trying to understand the complex interactions between two things. Can you briefly describe sort of your, the system that you use to analyze these impacts on your cohort? Sure, guys. So, so first, I must say,
2: I really believe that well-conducted observational trials can really teach us things that sometimes even a randomized controlled trial cannot teach us because we use all patients who present to an institution rather than only focusing on a very small, well, a well-defined group of patients, who, but not might be a good reflection of all patients that we have to treat in the ICU. So, and then, of course, whenever you look into observational research, you need to convince the reader that you have used adequate confounder control. Then, obviously, patients who get neuromuscular blocking agents are the ARDS patients who are sicker, who have a lower PF ratio and, you know, maybe more severe hypoxic respiratory failure. So it's, you know, always the investigator who needs to convince first the reviewers and editors and then the readers that we have addressed those concerns of inadequate confounder control. So we did that. And, you know, if you look at the paper and the supplements and sensitivity analysis, you will probably agree that, you know, all differences in case severity between the different groups, those with and without neuromuscular blocking agent treatment, were taken care of. So, then you mentioned the mediation analysis. So, mediation analysis is something which is pretty cool, which uh, gets you a little bit closer to arriving at causal interferences. And basically, the mediation analysis can be explained in three steps. So, we took those three steps, and I'm happy to walk you through those three. So, the first thing is you look at if the exposure here, neuromuscular blocking agent, is associated with the endpoint, that is, mortality. So that was the case. So in our cohort, the patients who received neuromuscular blocking agent, even when controlling for confounders, had a higher mortality. So the next step is then you add in the variable that you believe could be a mediator. A mediator is you know, a variable that uh, really explains the association between the exposure and the outcome. So in this case, it was the uh, high proportion of deep sedation. So, when we then added that variable, high proportion of deep sedation to the model, then the association of the exposure, which is muscle relaxants, and the endpoint, which is mortality in our study, disappeared. So, muscle relaxants, in other words, only explained in our cohort in the primary analysis variance in mortality when we did not control for deep sedation and then the third step is basically a analysis of the effects of deep sedation on mortality so deep sedation was a strong predictor of mortality so and if you have those three regression analyses you can get a variable which is percent mediated through the mediator. Here, deep high proportion of deep sedation. And in this case, it was, you know, almost unbelievable. We had to run this analysis several times, and we had several statisticians who confirmed those findings. 100% of the effect was mediated by deep sedation. In other words, really in our in our study, the muscle relaxants were not associated with bad outcome, but they were associated with a higher proportion of deep sedation, and that in turn was a predictor of mortality. So those are the findings in a nutshell
1: yeah, that is fascinating there There's a couple of threads that you started there, and hopefully we'll get to a, uh, many of them. but I really enjoyed your comment and I think it's one that we miss so often is is that the importance of observational research along with randomized control trials in critical care. I wonder if you might be able to elaborate a little bit more on that because I I find the same thing to be true because we have to control for so much in our randomized control trials that I feel like we don't always truly represent the patients we're caring for in the ICU.
2: Yes, that is certainly true, and that's particularly true for drug trials, particularly for drug company-sponsored trials. So there you have sometimes more exclusion criteria than number of patients included in the trial, because the sponsor of the study wants to be 100% sure that the result is in line with the expectation. And therefore we have a good confidence that in this subcohort of patients who, you know, meet all criteria, for example, say in ARDS, we could say it is a pneumonia, to just create an example in patients who are younger than thirty five years and the onset of the respiratory symptoms should not have been longer than five days, and the patients cannot have renal failure, liver failure and so forth. So, and you add exclusion criteria, and then you find a positive effect of your intervention. But that is important, and that is important to demonstrate proof of concept. But that cannot be the only piece of information that we look into. We actually treat patients who are older than 35 that have, maybe some of them have comorbidities that are relevant, and so therefore observational research studies are important. And particularly if we find that the observational studies can be validated by some of the observations in subgroups and randomized control trials, then I think it's extremely powerful. And for example, that was also here, there was a surprising overlap in the findings of the ROSE trial, which is an RCT, probably the highest level of evidence on ARDS and muscle relaxants, and our study on neuromuscular blocking agents. And I can talk more about that if you want to.
1: Yeah, I'd love for you to expand a little bit on that. I have one follow-up question, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on that first.
2: Yeah. So for example, in the ROSE trial, there was, even in the context of that randomized controlled trial, patients who received neuromuscular blocking agents had also a lower RAS scores after the termination of the neuromuscular blocking agent infusion than the controls. So even in that RCT, The clinicians would give the the sedatives a a higher dose for a longer period in the patients who had received neuromuscular blocking agents compared to those who did not. And so that is basically one of the most important findings of our study, that we think that uh, clinicians... Often, once they're used to looking at the patient who is subject to controlled ventilation with a set respiratory rate and peacefully is, you know, uh, interacting or not interacting with the ventilator, that just, you know, they want to keep that status quo up. Whereas in patients who did not receive neuromuscular blocking agents, maybe clinicians tried earlier to try their sedatives to allow for some spontaneous ventilation. So that that was an example of where we found in a subgroup analysis of the ROSE trial some evidence for the validity of finding that we found important in our
1: observational study. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the things that I found fascinating about your paper was sort of the prolongation of deep sedation in patients. And I was wondering if you had some thoughts about what was causing that. We've seen in some other small observational studies, particularly in the last year, that patients were getting very high doses of medications for sedation to achieve a a RAS goal. And, And there seemed to be more medications being used than necessary in other patients to achieve that same goal. And I wanted to see what your thoughts were around that.
2: Yeah, I think that often really in ARDS treatment, the sedation and neuromuscular blocking agent regimen is sometimes an anxiety-driven. So patients are providers, nurses, and also junior staff might be so afraid of a progression of the hypoxic respiratory failure if they change anything, you know, that they just don't do it. And they don't apply rigorously what we know is important from other areas of critical care that not directly relate to areas, which is the daily interruption of sedation, spontaneous awakening trials, and so forth. And so I have seen this in several areas where I've worked in Boston, but also back in Germany. And so that that this anxiety is certainly a factor that sometimes immobilizes the providers to, to try if the patient tolerates a lower level of sedation and maybe some level of spontaneous breathing. And honestly, you know, after the Papazian paper was published, the uh, curasis trial was published, there was a reason for keeping patients uh, paralyzed for a long time because the data were so positive. And now with the availability of the ROSE trial and maybe also some meta-analysis on RCTs, on observational data, Also, in the light of the current recommendations published in intensive care medicine as a guideline, we conclude, you know, it's not just safe to keep patients long-term paralyzed and deeply sedated. It adds a specific risk. And we should not forget about the basic principles of trying every shift to decrease the level of sedation and increase, you know, the mobility level of a patient.
1: Tagging onto that, I was wondering about what your thoughts around the specificity of the RAS as a way of monitoring sedation. We know that the clinical skill and that skill of determining is the patient responsive at different levels of sedation varies between providers. And I wonder to what impact you think the individual's anxiety around making sure people are truly in a deep sedative state before paralyzing them may be influencing uh, some of these results.
2: Yeah, so uh, a good point. So I, I think the RAS is a validated instrument. And if providers uh, follow instructions closely, then you know I would say we should use the data for clinical decision-making. I'm not aware of the availability of a better scale that is more valid and less prone to bias. But I agree with you that probably the expectation of the provider and what the solicitation level should be has an effect on the assessments. And as a matter of fact, during neuromuscular blockade, you cannot make assessments of the sedation level, as you know. So during the period of actual neuromuscular blocking agent infusion, the sedation level cannot be assessed based on a rating scale. The question is, what should we do during that time? So in our institution where we conducted the study in Boston, Our policy was once the neuromuscular blocking agent infusion was started, we do not decrease the sedative dose to be on the safe side and to make sure that we don't have this horrible scenario of a patient who is awake and paralyzed. The question is, should we use other strategies to monitor sedation, such as EEG-based technologies? And I think those are interesting questions.
1: I think we've all had the same idea about, is there an EEG method we could use to approach sedation in the paralyzed patient? Because that does create a, a lot of challenges, and hopefully someone will do that research for us at some point in time. I, a question about how they would do their outcomes, but you know that will be an interesting field of study in the future. As you concluded this study, you said that you were really surprised about the degree that deep sedation really influenced the outcome or the modifier effect there. Were there any other findings that you were particularly surprised by?
2: Well, personally, my bias was that probably neuromuscular blocking agents do, do not have beneficial effect on mortality in ARDS. That was just a bias because it was not really based on valid data. And you know what we found is when we looked into the subgroup of patients who were deeply sedated, then in fact, we found a significant beneficial effect of neuromuscular blocking agent infusions on mortality. And I was surprised by it. I mean, but others were probably not because, you know, that basically supports the validity of the perpasian study, the CURESIS studies, which means that if you really need to sedate a patient deeply, then neuromuscular blocking agents might improve outcomes so that I personally found surprising, but it makes sense. It will probably also, in conjunction with the other data supporting the use of muscle relaxant infusions in ARDS, if patients need the deep sedation, changes my personal clinical management.
1: So, where do we go to next? What's the next step in this research line of thinking that you're considering now?
2: Well, I would say in terms of research uh, studies, it would, of course, probably be nice to do a higher sample size trial, which is similar to the ACURASIS trial that focuses on patients who really clearly need the deep sedation to control the respiratory effort. We haven't spoken about that, right? So we are afraid of lung injury as a consequence of high inspiratory effort that cannot be controlled just based on Optimal ventilator management. That sometimes happens in patients with severe ARDS and an OPF ratio, and a really, really rigorous criteria and inclusion of only patients who really need the deep sedation to control their respiratory efforts. And then, where in both arms, the same sedation regimen is applied. So, that would probably be the final piece. And I predict if adequately powered, it will lead to a positive. But, you know, we are not good profits, but I think it's definitely worth to be studied. Other than that, I would say make sure that we do not paralyze or duplicitate our ARDS patients unnecessarily. Treat the ARDS patients clinically as other uh, ICU patients who are mechanically ventilated and do the spontaneous awakening trials and uh, spontaneous breathing trials, synchronize them, and every you know, shift make that attempt. I mean, we do, don't know yet to which level we should wake our patients up. So obviously there is also a threat in waking them 100% up and uh, in the for a patient who is not ready for spontaneous breathing. So I'm hoping that maybe future studies give us some additional uh, pieces of evidence that help clinicians make that that decision on how to wake them up, what is the right safe level, what is a variable that we should use, and when should we stop the spontaneous awakening and spontaneous breathing
1: trial. I really like those two takeaway messages to uh, use paralytics on the patients that are deeply sedated based on this information, and then to remind us all the importance of the ICU liberation pathway of checking every shift to make sure a patient still needs that level of sedation, because I do find that that is probably the the paramount piece is is that we like our patients comfortable and uh, not interactive, but we do have to check all the time to make sure that they're not ready to progress their illness. Other than those two takeaways, any other major takeaways for the audience?
2: No, thank you, Kyle. So I encourage everyone to read the wonderful editorial of Dr. Craig Jabalais, which was published alongside with our paper. I I think it really summarizes um, our findings and also the context and also the statistical analysis related considerations um, of mediation analysis nicely. And so thank you for having me and giving me the chance to explain
1: our study. I really appreciate you coming on to Eye Critical Care. For the audience, the July issue of Critical Care Medicine has both Dr. Eckman's study and the accompanying editorial, and I would recommend them to you as well because they're great pieces of scientific literature, and I think they'll really open our thoughts about future studies as well as the use of paralytics and sedation in our ICUs. For Eye Critical Care, I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Enfield.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Sound Physicians, the employer of choice for critical care physicians, where we seek to transform acute episodes of care. At Sound Physicians, we ensure physicians have the time and resources needed to deliver compassionate care that measurably improves quality and lowers the cost of health care for patients in the communities we serve. For more information, please visit careers.soundphysicians.com. Kyle B. Enfield, MD, FSHEA, FCCM, is an associate professor of medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Virginia, where he also serves as associate chief medical officer for critical care. He received his undergraduate degree, master's degree in epidemiology, and medical doctorate degree from the University of Oklahoma. Prior to his internship, residency, and fellowship at the University of Virginia, he was an intern in communicable diseases at the World Health Organization. His clinical and academic interests include highly transmissible diseases, disaster response and emergency preparedness, and critical illness recovery. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information. The iCritical Care Podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter. The Care podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion or endorsement on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, its officers, volunteers, or members, or that of the podcast commercial supporter.